Welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I'm your host, Nicholas Prolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space at my website, nicholascrolak.com or on Instagram at Nicholas underscore Crowley. My guest today is one of the most versatile drummers I've ever met, Matt Scarano. His mastery of odd time meters combined with his sense of swing and ability to deliver far-reaching musical narratives have made him a preeminent performer and educator. Lately, he's been on several major tours with Spaga Band and Modest Yahoo, as well as cultivating his own project, USE Trio collaboration with Sandy Eldred and Andrew Urbina, as well as carrying the torch of Philly homegrown concert series at Cherry Street Tavern. In our interview, we tackle a host of topics, including the Philly scene, Ben Schachter's musical legacy, playing cordless, developing time and feel, dealing with social media, and much more. Matt Scarano. Hey, hey. How's it going? Good. Uh, I just wanted to start out with not so much how we met, because I don't really remember, but the circumstances of how we met, and also the influence it had on me, because I don't know if you know that, but you're a big reason why I moved to Philadelphia in the first place. Oh. Uh, Because we were playing kind of in a circle that circled around our friend Mike Lorenz. Yeah. And his various bands at that time and I was living up in the Lehigh Valley and I didn't really know anybody in Philadelphia uh, except for some of the people that Mike had in his band being you um, Ian O'Byrne mm-hmm. and Anwar Marshall there might be some others that I'm forgetting but specifically yeah. them and you specifically you were playing in a rock band called Sunstep oh yes and that was a big influence to me when I realized jazz musicians also played in weird math rock bands. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, cool. Maybe I should get in on this because yeah. I like that too. The limits are whatever you put on yourself. You know? yeah. I mean, whatever music you're into, you can, you can do it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. But I noticed that a lot more in Philly. I, uh, I would say, I feel like the impression I get from people I know in New York are much more specialized and they just like... Sure or the world-class master at this one super specific thing. I think that might have to do with, with it being that there's so many uh, so many fish kind of things, sort mm-hmm. of, that, like, you're like, how do I make a dent, or how do I, like, make any impact? And sometimes that might require you to really hone in on a specific thing, yeah. you know what I mean? To just make noise when there's so much noise, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I feel like Philly's the kind of town where it's just, there's 
I mean, it's putting out so many musicians because of the like jazz education scene in it and, and the, the college programs. So there's just so, and plus the history. I mean, you combine those two things and there's just so much talent, but so many outlets. If, if anything, there were more outlets for weird rock venue, you know, like indie rock kind of stuff as, as opposed to like committed jazz clubs, you know. So this, all, this whole scene we're describing too, it all like I think revolved around the tritone. Yeah. Which is, you know, oh, the tritone. I mean, yeah. yeah, that's that's like when like when I think about mm-hmm. all the stuff you're describing and like when we met and all those years like post college, it all kind of revolved around that scene because I would play shows there with Sunstep. I'd do like a rock show, you mm-hmm. know, whatever rock for better, you know, what is rock, what is jazz. But like I would do a show there and then two days later it would be Ian O'Burns like modern jazz. Uh, odd meter, densely, you know, harmonized, like complicated music. Mm-hmm. And it was like that every night of the week. You'd have like yeah. a heavy metal show and then you'd have like the jazzers. And it was just like city special, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. just like such a good environment, you know? And I think like it's, it's really a shame. I think Philly, I guess if he's has some of those things, but maybe it could be the combination that I'm older and more boring that I just don't know that there's places like <laughs> yeah, that yeah, yeah. or there just aren't places like that. You know, I know when it, when it sold and became like whatever generic Astro pub it is now, it's sort of like, even at the time I was like, well, that's not what Philly needs, you know, yeah. it's more, more beer and walls, you know, yeah, like those brick. Exactly. Yeah. Like, menus. no, we got enough of those, yeah. you know, like we need places for art, you know? But anyway, yeah, it all revolved around the tritone scene and playing in Mike's band. And we probably, I'm sure, ended up playing Mike's music at some point oh, yeah. early on in those years. Mm-hmm. And Mike and Eno Byrne. And then Mike was a roommate of mine when he moved down to Philly from the Lehigh Valley. Mm-hmm. So that was probably our sort of connection into playing music yeah. together and being on bills together. Yeah, I remember specifically, it just popped into my, my brain about another experience that we had together that was a formative experience in my mind about place of jazz or maybe even marketing or communicating jazz to a, a, a larger audience, the non-jazz audience, mm-hmm. where we played in West Philly at a place, I can't remember, it was an Ethiopian restaurant? Oh, um... Gojo. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. There's Dalak. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's yeah, there's like West Baltimore Ave <laughs> within like four blocks has like eight Ethiopian restaurants. Yeah. Um, there was a Dalak scene, but yeah, Gojo, I think, I just saw something posted that I, I hadn't thought about in a while. I think it was called the Science Fiction Series. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, Travis Woodson, I saw him post yeah. about it. Um, and it was like looking at old flyers. And I had mm-hmm. played there, again, like... The, the combination of different groups. I did one with Ben Schachter, you know, mm-hmm. and then Sunstep did one. Actually, the first time I saw Sunstep before I was even in the band when, like, John, the keyboard player, was playing, like, a floor tom. Like, mm-hmm. the first, their, one of their first shows was at Gojo, yeah. at that series where they would combine sort of, like, anything goes, you know, the jazz scene with the indie rock scene, and it was just, like, a really interesting curated, curated uh, concert series. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember that weird pool game that that the that the regulars would play up I on the second floor it's like they have a pool table yeah. but it's up against a wall huh. and they just play with their hands it's not like bumper it was kind of yeah. like a mixture of like bumper pool but like one-sided or like 
I don't know uh, if you, yeah. I don't remember that. I, I never, yeah. like, knew what the name of it was or if they just, like, you know, couldn't fit a pool table so they invented it <laughs> in the room so they just did, invented their own version of it. But that's the other thing I remember about that spot. I remember we played with Mike, Mike's band, with, with Matt Mitchell. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Um, I have a recording of it somewhere. Was I it should... from uh, Taper Tom? guy that would come and just record he had oh, microphones yeah, in his yeah, glasses yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the next time you see him yeah he would just there would be a blank cd yes. like i have i have a couple like uh uh shows with ben yeah with ben schachter that were just like i didn't yeah. i he, next time he saw me he just like yeah. put it on the snare drum and was like here's the show you did you know that, that must have been where it was from because i don't remember i'll ask lorenz but yeah I, it must be mm-hmm. and i have one from gojo is one one of the bootlegs yeah, I guess yeah, can yeah. we call it bootleg yeah, if like we're not is, famous you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it worth calling a bootleg like it's you know I remember doing that show at, with with Matt Mitchell and I had no idea who he was at the time by the way Mike was just like yeah this some this guy is playing keyboard yeah, he was like hiding in like the University of the Arts library you know yeah. he like worked there and he was like this genius musician <laughs> yeah. yeah I remember being so well because he when we recorded with Mike he played yeah I think he played in the recording and I remember like that was an early moment of being like intimidated or asking somebody like, "Hey, like, is there anything you don't like?" Yeah, you know, yeah. like I was like, "I don't want to piss you off because you're like really good." Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I remember he brought—he was one of the first people I ever saw just bring a little MIDI controller mm-hmm. and just hook it up to uh, to a computer and just make it whatever sound he wanted, right. which I really liked. But the big takeaway from that night for me was I had some friends from out of town go to that and. They didn't really want to go. They didn't like jazz. Mm-hmm. And then we played, and they're like, to, afterward they said to me, that sounded like Pink Floyd. I <laughs> love Pink Floyd. Uh-huh. That was great. Right. I loved it. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of, of expanding the audience by carefully using the jazz word, mm-hmm. you know? I feel like jazz sometimes to people sounds like, oh, I got to do like work or something, or I'm not for this or yeah it has sort of there's there's a connotation of um, I mean I don't know the best way to describe like not like a pressure I mean I'm also trying to imagine what goes on in a non-music like like an audience members you know uh, brain I mean it's it's hard because we're so inside you know mm-hmm. and we just like we know the music inside and out and the scene inside and out maybe it's like an, an intimidation sort of you know of like I feel like what's most people's probably response is like, I don't get it. And who likes things that they don't get? I mean, some people are very, you know, they're drawn to the unknown. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, especially when you consider, you know, one of the, I think, primary functions of music and art in general is to like to get, you know, to give joy, you know, to give emotion, you know. Mm-hmm. And well, I guess, you know, uh, Anxiety is an emotion, but that's not usually what you want to give your, I mean, you know, technically that's an emotion, but it, you want, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, they don't want to go to a, they don't want to work hard to understand something. They just want to enjoy, you know, they want to enjoy their experience because you do all this stuff generally you don't want to do all day long. And then when you go to see a performance, you know, it's, it's a release for you. It should be fun, you know, and the whole, the idea of like, oh, it can be fun. It's like. Or, you know, make jazz fun or make it more accessible. Like, that doesn't have to be cheap. You yeah. know, that's that's not that's not cheating the music. That's mm-hmm. not like 
diminishing the integrity of it at all. It's just it, it's just realizing that other part of the equation and the goal of music, yeah. or maybe not goal, but the the one of the like underlying purposes mm-hmm. of music and art in general. Yeah, you know, is you want to reach somebody, whatever it is. They you might reach them with like the thing you thought was like the dumbest thing, you know, mm-hmm. like. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It it matters. Yeah. To them, you know. Absolutely. That makes me think of trying to imagine, like before going into a show, trying to imagine the the experience. Trying to think backwards a little bit, like what is the experience I want them to come away with before you even play? Yeah. Before before, even make before you make the set list or like whatever before you write the thing. Those are often like forgotten, you know, and I'm not like, it's not like I make a set list and I think yeah. about my, my emotions and that thing, you know, yeah. like, but that is, I think there's something to be said for that. And I think yeah. that is kind of a forgotten part of yeah. that. You know who like champions the audience, you know, is Mike Boone, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. what, like a, a huge mentor to both of us. Yeah, it's just sort of like makes a point of being like, Saul really doesn't mean much if you're not there, you know, yeah. if the other 50% isn't there, mm-hmm. you know. And sometimes he's even saying this maybe, like, to restaurant, you know, to people who still kind of, are, like, they're there, but they're not there. But yeah. it, it doesn't matter. He makes yeah. a point of, of doing it. And, and that also, that helps bring, because I think with that intimidation of, like, I don't understand, I don't get jazz, you know. Yeah. Like, so you just sort of, like, you leave that wall up, even mm-hmm. if you're in the same room as it, you know, mm-hmm. it's like literally happening in the restaurant or bar or whatever that you're in, but you're just like, there's a wall up and you're shut down. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, Hey, Hey everybody, you know, yeah. like, Hey you, like yeah. we're here. Thanks for being here. we like, you're, you're part of this too. And then it's like, Oh, okay. It just sort of breaks that wall yeah, down. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Uh, I want to switch over to another, uh, mentor of ours, um, that, you know, I, I got a lot out of your collaboration over the years with, with Ben Schachter. Mm-hmm. Um, how was it that you guys came to came to form your group that was so um, powerful on the scene for, for so many years? Well, first off, thanks for, you know, I'm glad that it, it, anything we did had, had an impact on yeah, you and absolutely. you and anybody else. It, it certainly had... It continues to have, I mean, his influence has, um, continues to have a huge impact on me mm-hmm. and I'm a better person and musician for all that like lucky amount of time that I got to, to study with him and, and get to know him and, and call him a friend. So that started, um, so I went to Temple for undergrad. Mm-hmm. I, I did jazz performance there. I moved it like 2003. 2007 by the time I want to say so he was teaching there you know theory classes uh, styles and analysis we have a whole I don't know if you've ever seen you seen those monk charts yeah. with like just his mm-hmm. handwriting yeah, all yeah, over yeah. them like so uh, we the had a line a, with the arrow and mm, the circle the brackets and arrows mm-hmm. yeah the whole the whole thing the um, melodic augmentation you know <laughs> yeah. phrase diminution just all the you know all this stuff and it's and I still have all those things so from having those classes with him um, styles and analysis where we talked about Coltrane and Monk and studied that um, and but once it came to you know when you're at like music school sometimes it takes you know depending on how much is going on it takes sort of like even some faculty like 
takes them a while to even kind of know you're there or know mm-hmm. that maybe you're a standout or know mm-hmm. that you show promise or you have a specialty or you, you know, have uh, whatever you want to call it. But um, that was kind of like, I want to say end of sophomore, junior year, like that's when stuff started to sort of change, like within school and also like Philadelphia started to play more, go out more, people know that know who I was and sort of just... Um, sort of become more of a member of the scene. But anyway, so as 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 far as um getting to know Ben, he was in charge of putting ensembles together. That was like part of his part of his gig there. Um which he famously hated. Yeah, I think everybody yeah, yeah. If you like it, there's probably something wrong with you. Um, but but anyway, so he um and he had the idea his ensemble was odd meter ensemble. We called oh, it odd ensemble. Um and so I got to do I think I think maybe it was my senior year. By senior year, he just, like, I think he just plucked the people that he wanted, you know, like, he just curated Uh his own ensemble. And from there, just every week working with him, and I think just knowing that um, the odd meter thing was something that he had spent a lot of time on, was fascinated with, and it sort of, you know, um, cultivated his approach to changing meters of existing tunes, or just learning how to improvise in odd meters in five, seven, nine, etc. Um, he and seeing the musicians doing it with him, he, me, and Leon uh, Boykins at mm-hmm. the time, we were both in that ensemble. And I think from from that experience, he essentially was like, "All right, I think this is going to be my band." I'd say probably by my senior year, we had done a gig. Actually, the first gig I ever did with him was something that I don't think was ever recreated, and it was really. It was so fun. I mean, we're also like kids, so it was extremely nerve-wracking. Like the yeah. amount of like nervousness in the room of like these twenty-year-old kids playing with him, you know. Mm-hmm. And also Jeff Lee Johnson was oh, on the gig, wow, so yeah. we were just like yeah, we were yeah, scared yeah. shitless. Um, we did. Uh, I think it was at the Slot Foundation. He put on like a, it was kind of like a Halloween. It was around Halloween time. I remember like costumes and stuff. But he had this whole like sort of double trio kind of idea. It was two guitars, two saxophones two basses and drums love the two basses yeah well that's always that's something <laughs> yeah. that when we when the grad program yeah, yeah, when we yeah. both got to work with ben later on yeah in in our career um that was always a huge approach approach for him and he has so much music that is written for two basses yeah. and he has um he has a lot of compositions that aren't even recorded unfortunately may never be recorded but are written for that instrumentation yeah. so that was that first gig I think it was me, Mike Simprola was the other horn player. Imagine like being a horn player and asking Ben, you know, to yeah, yeah. be the other horn player on your gig. Uh, Basses were Tim Lappin, who uh, he doesn't live in Philly anymore, but he was uh, another U Arts standout with with Mike Simprola, uh, Jeff Lee Johnson, Tim Wendell, oh, cool. a, a good yeah, friend yeah. of ours, um, and Omnon Friedland. I don't know if you ever got to know him. I didn't. Yeah. So yeah, we were we were the band for that. So that was the first gig I played with him, and it was still in school. And then after that, we were fortunate enough to find a couple like residencies or just weekly mm-hmm. or monthly gigs. And so from that point, it was like okay, we're a part of the band, and I got to work with him, and we got to learn his music. And from that point, it was pretty much it was me, him, and Leon, and that was it. It was an yeah. interesting kind of thing where he he really because he's you know he's. He's a very particular musician. He, he's he's extremely deep. It's like music is very powerful to him, and he only wants to make powerful, beautiful music. You know. Yeah. And so I think part of that of really having 
knowing that the sound of a band was way more important than yeah. any ripens than any one individual part. Mm-hmm. It was just like cultivating that group where it's like together it was it was powerful. Yeah. You know? And so from there that was probably like two thousand seven and then, you know, so twelve years of, of playing his music and, and, and getting to know him and be a friend has been incredibly valuable to me. I'm still using all his ideas, mm-hmm. you know, like now that now that now that I'm at the point of, of teaching, educating, whatever, yeah. um, I'm just like I'm like carrying carrying the torch <laughs> of his approach just because I yeah. it meant so much to me. It was a huge influence on me, and um, it just kind of got it too. Like his approach just really spoke to me, yeah. you know, and his his appreciation for which I think is not everybody sort of gets. I think it's really important of like understanding the roles of everybody in the band and like being that musician, mm-hmm. like be a bass player like you know I'm sure like in a in another life he probably would want to be a bass player yeah you know and like all right you need to learn how to do a bass bass line you know or like you need to learn how to groove you know because even even as a lot of people associated him stuff with being like complicated and like and and like whoa what's he doing but he's also I feel like he's as influenced as James by James Brown as he is by John Coltrane you yeah. know like because there still is like this powerful groove element and this pocket to everything that he does you know yeah. that I kind of I kind of absorb some of that where it's like you need to know how to be every person and then I think by knowing that of being like knowing what a bass player does why a bass player plays what he does why it works mm-hmm. with what you do it not only like it just makes you a better musician. I mean, just across the board, it's just like a lesson in musicianship, but it builds empathy too, I think for the, like when you're playing with somebody of, of like being aware of what you're doing, how what you're doing affects them and sort of like, you know, being sensitive to that because it's communicative music, you know, you need to compute, yeah. you need to listen, you need to talk and all that, but you sort of get like an appreciation and, and an empathy for like, the other musician's role in the band and yeah. I think that helps that helps the music yeah um, you're talking about the sound of a band and I, I feel like both of us really enjoy dedicated bands mm-hmm. and I feel, feel like that's a thing that has been kind of missing in jazz a lot you get see a lot of super one-off super groups Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of like one-off runs and i get the the economics play play a part in that who's available when but you know when you really think about the 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 standout standouts throughout jazz history it's like you know the great quintet second great quintet coltrane's band you know you, you think bands yeah and that had a sound that had a sound and and were together for a long time so that's that's something i i think about a lot especially when i'm listening to stuff Mm -hmm. i I like to follow bands maybe i just come from like a rock the rock world you know when i was younger yeah it was all about the bands right right and um how has that translated to you are a member of, um, I would say one of the one of the next Philly's next great harmonyless bands, uh, the Used Trio. Wait, no, there's harmony. There's just not chords. Yeah, it's chordless. chordless. Yeah, chordless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're correct. <laughs> um, um, 
Which we yeah. should mention, yeah, that was a huge part of Ben's yeah. Ben's thing was like never chords. I mean, yeah. uh, we may have done a gig with. Uh, well, he would have like Tom Lawton would guest on a song on mm-hmm. on the records, but performance wise, always chordless was always yeah. his approach. You know? Yeah, and I, you know, there's a bunch of bands that I really like um, that do that. Uh, Happy Apple being one of my mm-hmm. personal favorites. Um, that's a not an easy approach. Um, because there's just a, a lot more weight on everybody else, on everybody to carry, mm-hmm. I feel. Um, but going back to the, the U.S. trio, or U.S.E. trio, for Urbina, Scarano, Eldred. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I was at your um, CD release party. At Plays and Players? At Plays and Players, yeah. yes. Um, and that was a really great performance and how did that group come together and yeah how did that group come together uh, Sandy and I had had just known each other from the scene and playing you know uh, uh, pick up gigs whatever just uh, playing with different um, different jazz musicians around the city and we did I think we did a gig at Tired Hands, mm-hmm. which, you know, our, our, yeah. our mutual friend Mike Lorenz runs the music there, playing there tonight. I know you're not supposed to timestamp pod, podcasts, yes. but uh, <laughs> um, if this is coming, you when this is coming out, you missed it. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. Actually, I think Sandy's playing tonight, too. Cool. So we had, um, he had asked us to cover a night for him, and um, Sandy had the idea of uh, asking Andrew, who they know each other um, from Norm David's band. So they play in Norm David's 11 Tet. And so Sandy knew Andrew from that world, and he knew me from... Sandy was also, like, a huge uh, supporter and fan of, of Ben, you know, mm-hmm. of Ben's trio. So he kind of knew me from that. And he kind of was like, I think these guys might might work together. And so we just did a gig at Tired Hands. You know, it's a it's a restaurant gig. Yeah. You know, it's a restaurant bar gig. Um, you get to play whatever you... It's, it's kind of unique in yeah. that, like, the, the place itself is very cool. The ownership is is very is into all sorts of stuff and they really just like literally play whatever you want um no complaints and um so we just and it was like real obvious i remember the moment like middle of first set you know you do like what two three sets there middle of first set i was just like oh whoa and i was mm-hmm. like like our eyes were closed and we and we were playing and like it was just like instant connection and obviously i knew sandy and i had a connection uh just uh, on the way we play and the types of music that we like mm-hmm. um but Andrew, I didn't know. This was somebody I had just met. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the beauty. That's like the beauty of this. Sometimes you can be yeah. like, how many times has somebody, uh, an audience member, come up and been like, <laughs> like, what, like, so how long have you guys been playing? Yeah. And you're like, well, forty five minutes. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like that's yeah. literally it. We just met each other, and they're like, no. What? But that's just. I mean, that's that's part of the beauty of it. You know. Yeah. So it was it was really um, obvious that him and I had a connection. It was like, oh, cool. And then from there. Sandy just had the idea. He's like, "Yeah, this is my new band," you know. And then, at the time, I think we had in our schedules we had a lot of time. We started meeting here at my house, um, like once a week, and just rehearsing. And uh, you know, some like we would do like some ornette heads because it was clear like it was clear we could do like a like a free approach. Because Andrew was great. Like he's he's Andrew Urbina is just like he's such a well-rounded like heavy musician. He knows like. 
Um, he knows percussion. You know, he spent a lot of time in Colombia. Um, so he has all this like really strong rhythm sense. He studied with, uh, you know, with George Garzon. So he has like, you know, who's one of Ben's, Ben's teachers. So he has like this incredible just control and, and mastery of the instrument itself and all the, you know, all the things you can do with it. So um, we would, it would, it would be this combination of like free but groove at the same time. And obviously as a rhythm player, I'm just like, that's the first thing I latch on to with any player is be yeah. like, are they, are they like, are we sparring with some rhythms? Like, yeah. like, are they giving me some stuff and like, you know, like that's the first thing I react to with like a new musician is like mm -hmm. their rhythmic sense, obviously. Um, but yeah, and from there it was just like, it was clear that we had a connection and mm -hmm. wanted to sort of, and I was happy to have another chordless trio, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. just to, to sort of like, of course not recreate. We could never recreate um, the stuff we did with Ben, nor should you, there's no yeah. point. It's, it's, that's not, the point ever is to recreate anything but just to have another outlet for that mm -hmm. thing I was like oh man I miss this you yeah. know because I mean you know you talk about the weight of sort of the responsibility and the weight of like having less musicians in the group and having to make something happen but in a way it's I've always found it as like more freedom mm -hmm. I mean obviously for me you know drums drums tend to get the most freedom because usually people don't write for us they don't tell you know what I mean mm -hmm. it's just like Here's here's a lead sheet. Make magic. Yeah, yeah, you, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean. They're just like do your magic drum stuff. You know, <laughs> or like read my mind and yeah. like you know just like um, kind of thing. But playing chordless and playing trio mm -hmm. is that I found that that just that gave me a lot more freedom actually to like take chances and between the two melodic instruments, you know, or the two pitched instruments, horn and bass, whatever. In this case, it's it's horn and and bass you get to, you can like shift on a dime. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Cause there doesn't have to be this like harmonic agreement of like, oh, well, look, oh, you guys are there, but I'm, I'm still over here. Mm -hmm. Like the change is instantaneous. Yeah. You know what I mean? Soon as a bass note goes here and the one person, you know, the other player reacts to it, it's like, boom, you're there. Mm -hmm. So like you can get to an agreement musically so much quicker. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I think it allows like you to take chances or successfully take chances, you know, a little bit more as long as long as you have an ear, you know, as long as your ears are open and the players are are um, used to that. Yeah. You know, so there's also a lot of freedom in it that, that I've always enjoyed. And plus, you'd also doing the you also need to know your role. too. There's freedom, but it's also if you want to do it well, you should know when you're playing your role because mm -hmm. the. One of the things that helped me get um, to get better at doing the odd meter stuff and playing in Ben's band was having a bass player like Leon who would just hold it down, you know? Yeah. And not to say the whole time, there would be moments where I would realize, Matt, you need to hold it, like, you need to, like, play the same thing for two measures in a row, which you never, you know, yeah. which you never do. Like, you need to, to hold something down for them. And it's sort of like that. I call it like somebody needs to stay home and yeah. then the other people get to explore, you know, but, yeah. but that role constantly changes. Then it's the next person's turn to stay home and then you get to take chances. But really the, the way to make it work and to make good improvised trio cordless music is to have your ears open and be able to like, all that stuff is happening in real time mm -hmm. and without anything said, you know, based on what the other person plays, you realize like, Oh, they're doing that now this is what I have to do you yeah know? so I want to want to move over to uh, another band that you're playing in 
uh, quite a bit lately. This summer you were all over the place with um, with the this Baga band, mm-hmm. and with another one of my favorite bass players of all time, Jason Fraticelli. Oh yeah. Um, so how is can you describe that band a little bit and how it differs from the U.S.E. trio and kind of how you see your role in it? Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, similarities, three people. Mm-hmm. That's a little trivial, but um, other similarities would be um, e- like equal equal parts. Uh, I, I guess in both projects, every musician is featured prominently. It's no, like, both are collectives, I guess is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Like, whether it's um, improvisationally, compositionally, you know, um, every voice is a huge part of the band. You know what I mean? It's not like rhythm section, artist kind of thing. So that started, um, so, and if, now differences are definitely going to be in the scale of gig, you know, mm-hmm. so, so Spaga was started, um, it was a, it was a cold call project, at least for me. Um, so it was, uh, the project was started by Aaron Magner, who's a founding member of the Disco Biscuits, who's a very popular, successful, uh, electronica jam band. It's been around for, I think they've been around for like probably 20 years yeah, now or so. They're very successful, um, mm-hmm. in that scene. And so they're getting, to that point he wanted to start a side project he had known jason who both both are a little bit older than i am so they knew each other from you know the adjacent philly sort you know they, they knew of each other and so when he decided he wanted to take this thing and start a quote-unquote jazz trio which really i mean when we talk about the group a lot we talk about like it's is it jazz? you know it's not it's not really it's not really jazz but it also it it doesn't matter it's improvised mm-hmm. communicative energy music you know yeah, yeah, just yeah. just like usc as we like I'm, I'm jumping back and forth a lot now but like the usc thing a lot of what we model after is like what we call energy music mm-hmm. which was there's like two big influences for that um the obvious one is the fringe mm-hmm. which was um obviously like you know george garzone it's john lockwood right is that the bass player i believe so yeah and then uh bob galati um so they uh, were huge influence, and there's all these like connections there with that. Like they were a huge influence. Like Ben studied with with George Garzon. Andrew studied with George Garzon. So, but obviously them being a cordless horn bass drums trio, that was a huge model for us. And then less predictable, freak out avant guitar, Sonny Sonny Chirac, or something, <laughs> you know, like which Ben was the one that told me when I told him I discovered this record from the '90s with Elvin on it called Ask the Ages. Yeah, he's like. Oh, he's like, yeah. He's like, I listen to that all the time. He's like, I remember having the CD. I remember buying the CD when it came out and it had a sticker on it that said, The Triumphant Return of Energy Music. And uh, I was, just, and I was yeah. just like, yeah, man. So that's like, so Sandy and I will, will use that term energy music a lot when we're talking about that because that's like what we're trying to accomplish. It's like, yeah, doesn't matter. Like the label doesn't matter as much as it's like, it's putting out yeah. and like it's it has a, a definable energy like based on what we decide to play and there's yeah. a lot of improv in it so we sort of just always start a gig with free improv yeah you know um i like that like defining the goal beforehand yeah, yeah that, goes, that's a thing i hear uh a lot in 
high high level performers of any kind mm-hmm. is defining the end result with the end, desired end result first and that that's a great example of that being like this is what we want to accomplish yeah and yep. then boom yeah you know, one two three go mm-hmm. um the uh so anyway back to yeah. back to spaga so the um yeah so that had started he so aaron had recruited uh jason from mm-hmm. knowing him you know and as you met like jason is he's he's everywhere he's such a, yeah. a special player he's he like He's an upright player, but I don't even think of him as an upright player because he has such a specific approach and like and effects and pedals and stuff. But um, just one of my you know one of my favorite musicians to play with, and now I'm playing with him all the time because we've yeah. started doing. He plays with Modest Yahoo, yeah. a reggae artist. I've started doing some of those gigs, so yeah. like we're now like a pack. We're becoming like a package deal. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. We're calling each other like tour tour wives. Because <laughs> um, we're just like we're we're con- you know it's not like oh when's my next gig it's like when's our next gig yeah, yeah, you know yeah. but anyway um, so he had recruited him and he was asking Aaron just asked him for recommendations and lucky I was lucky enough to be one of the recommendations and so it was kind of like a cold call thing Aaron mm-hmm. called me told me about the project and it was one of those things again similar to USC where we just got in a room and played it was very clear early on with Spaga too that it was like personality wise musically um, it was like it just fit and it was like it was like oh, okay we can do this and Aaron Aaron has described um, when talking about the band and on podcasts before of um, he just wanted kind you know kind generous like good performance not because for him he was trying to reintroduce himself to the jazz, you know, quote-unquote jazz world, because he had been doing this whole synthesizer electronica thing for so many years, and he wanted to get back to his roots. Mm -hmm. He wanted to play a piano, you know? And so he didn't want... It wasn't about hiring, like, the baddest, you know, the baddest cats that would just, like, make him feel intimidated or alienated. He just wanted, like, kind people that were just open, like, open-minded, kind musicians, you know, that could improvise. Yeah, that reminds me, reminds me of the, um, when we were in grad school together at Temple, Mm -hmm. we got to, got to play with Donnie McCaslin. Oh, yeah. That was a big thing he talked about with the the different groups he played in, Mm -hmm. and um, the Maria, Maria Schneider Orchestra about um, just, just wanting to be around good, good people. Yeah, you know. And oh, it's a that's huge a requisite for yeah. making that music. And I, I feel like people forget that sometimes. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah, and it's, I mean, because it's a huge, it's a huge part of it. I mean, it kind of like goes back to what you mentioned about like, you know, the sound of a band, and like, yeah, you could get like name like five of the baddest cats and just put them in a room with no, you know, it's yeah. like that might not yield a better result than yeah. like five people you've never heard of who have not only like a music, a musical connection and musical sensibilities that that are similar, but like, no, you know, like make each other laugh, yeah. you know, like Absolutely. literally, like you know, just enjoy being around each other. That is a huge part of you know yeah. it is because we're with with jazz and any improvised music you're putting your emotions into it like your your personality should be heard and felt you know so if you are with people that have a like-minded personality or just personalities that complement each other mm-hmm. you know that comes through in improvised music you know yeah. that's that's another important part about it you know absolutely um i want to switch gears a little bit and when when i think when I think of you, the first thing that comes to mind is like your odd 
meter playing. Um, but there was a there was an, uh, a time at Ortlieb's, um, the second reincarnation of Ortlieb's, where you were playing in the house band. Uh huh. Um, on the I think it was like the Tuesday night session. It was like the was it like when Pete when Pete started running the session yeah, again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't. It, it still was the previous owners, but yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, or no, it still was the new owners. New owners. The new owners, but Pete was doing yeah. the Tuesday night. Yeah. Tuesday night jam session. And maybe you weren't on the game. Maybe Mickey Roker was. But I remember Mickey was there. Oh. And you did were... he did he say I could play? Yeah. Oh, that's he the shot. I... He totally did. Oh, and... I, I just did say it, but I was like, oh, I can only let other people say that because I sound like such a, you know, like, <laughs> like, Mickey Roker said I could really play. But that is like one of the, like, yeah. I, I want to just like, when I meet someone, be like, be like, hey, I'm Matt Scarano. Mickey <laughs> Roker said I could really play, you know, but I can't because that would make me a sociopath, you know? Yeah. I'm going to make you a t-shirt. Though, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mickey Roker said I could play. <laughs> but you were playing like super straight ahead you know and you've played in, in my band before and you know my, my thing is like super straight ahead I don't think I do any t- odd times no I have one odd time tune but we only played it once don't sell yourself was. short <laughs> like I said when I first think of you I hear, think odd times and I hear other people associate you with odd times but your swing feel is just as up there and what were, are your kind of influences in like the straight ahead Kind of, kind of realm. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's worth saying that feel like your feel should exist in any style of music mm-hmm. that that you're playing. You know, especially uh, especially as a drummer. Yeah. You know, which that's some. There's so many intangible magic. You know, like magical, like mysterious things about drums that you can't quantify. You know, mm-hmm. you think about drums, you think about like, oh, it's the most quantifiable thing. It's like that you can yeah. put it on a grid, and it's like. But the magic is in between. Is yeah. in between that and, and just what the feel that you can you can mm-hmm. convey the information with, and everybody's is you know different. Um, so, so yeah, whether it's odd meter, whether it's complicated, simple, or like a, a singer songwriter gig with a kick and a snare and nothing else, and you got to play at sixty BPM, like mm-hmm. your feel is your experience, you know. And so for me, my experience was like. You know, I I grew up listening to alternative rock music. You know, first yeah. thing I bought, first tape, tape, first cassette tape yeah, I bought because yeah, yeah. I was I was like they're cheaper than CDs and I don't have yes, enough money. Exactly. So I'll get the tape. Also, um, I don't have a CD player. Exactly. Yeah, because that's more money. <laughs> um, but yeah, first cassette tape I bought was Presidents of the United States of America. Yeah. And I and I my, I got my drum set and I went cheese lump cha cha chipple chipple cha cha to the point where my my siblings were like. Do you know another song? You know, because <laughs> yeah. I was just doing it like all. But anyway, that it was. So I, I think a huge part of developing a good feel is is playing along to the people. So my my journey into jazz it started with no jazz at all, which yeah. I think a lot of like you know kids from the it, that happens kids with the suburbs. If your parents or somebody in your family, somebody close to you, does not have this like association to jazz, chances are it's not going to find its way to. You, yeah. you know, it's not going to find its way to you, depending on what your, you know, your background is or where you grow up or, or etc. Um, so for me, it started with like, and I was probably playing along to stuff that was recorded to a metronome. You know, it was recorded to a click track, which is also like, to this day, I still play with clicks all the time, whether I'm in the studio and it's something like, 
there's an enjoyment, like, I get a lot of enjoyment out of, like, knowing how to, like, keep, you know, keep that, yeah. keep time good, because that's one of, like, the primary, uh, you know, roles and sort of, like, uh, for drums, period. But anyway, um, the, so, with the straight ahead thing, you know, I was fortunate enough to have like a really good jazz band program at my high school in Wilmington, Delaware, where I grew up. It was one of those things like once, and I never really did, I didn't do a lot of the like orchestra or like marching band, you know, never did those kind of things. It was always like drum set. It was always very clear that it was like, and I would even come and be like, I'm not a percussionist. I don't know how to play play the xylophone or the timpani or this. I don't know how to do that. I'm a, I'm a drummer because I play drum set. Um, that I was fortunate to, enough to have like a really good band, uh, jazz band program at school, and that was like where the love started and and learning how to play, you know, had had to play time and, and have a good feel. And it was also around that time, like high school, later high school, where I discovered jazz. And part of being in in jazz band was what kind of opened me up to that music. Mm-hmm. And then every paycheck I got. I went to Borders. We're really dating ourselves now, too, because yes. that doesn't even exist anymore. Um, so I would go to Borders and buy every blue. I would just be like, what's like the Freddie Hubbard's, you know, like every jazz great. I would just buy every, like all the CDs and like all my money went to that. And so I was just listening constantly to like all these classic recordings. So as far as like, I know I've said kind of, uh, uh, conflicting things because I've said like playing along with recordings and also listening I never played along with jazz recordings like, ever I just I, I didn't do it I listened to them incessantly like mm-hmm. like I listened constantly but I would actually never play play along I would just but what I think helped is having the background of just like building doing all that time stuff in different types of music and like doing all that work before I got to the jazz thing because you shouldn't be thinking about a metronome when you're playing when you're swinging playing jazz anyway because everybody knows time's in agreement like you need to like you need to have a strong sense of it so the music can stay you know and not like creep too far up or down but I saw it as having done the homework you know like learning like how to play with a metronome and play along to like rock recordings where you realize like, oh, every time I do that fill, I, I rush. Mm-hmm. And what you do by do is like you learn what your tendencies are. And like, if you can notice it, you can fix it. That's what I tell students all the time. The worst thing is that like you don't, if you have no idea, you're like, oh, what happened? Like, what do you mean what happened? You didn't hear that you rushed, you know, like as soon as you identify it, you can fix it. So I just got a lot of that stuff done from like being in the garage and playing along to like, you know, alternative rock recordings and and all this stuff that I had just like that gave me this sense, this sense of time. Mm -hmm. So when I got to jazz, I, I would, it was learning all this extra, you know, independent stuff and these creative ideas and learning that language. But the, my foundation of time, like I had already put in that so that when I was playing it, I was learning how to keep time while in real time while playing with other musicians. You know, because there's also, and I, different drummers, you know, with all those recordings, different drummers have different senses of where the time is too. Middle, top, bottom, whatever, you know, like uh, how they accent the ride cymbal, whether they're quarter note strong, whether they're two and four strong kind of thing. So that it's like, 
if I had played along, it's like, I'd be like, who am I? You yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. there'd be this element of like, well, yeah. am I Jimmy Cobb or am yeah, I, you yeah. know, am I Billy Higgins? Like which, which one? I'd be like, no, no, don't worry. Like listen to it, get all those ideas. But then when you sit down at the drum set, be you, yeah. you know what I mean? And like your time is based on your experiences mm-hmm. and the types of music and, and just how much experience you've gotten doing it. Like jazz is an experience game. Yeah. It's like one of the, tricky things about education and doing it is because really you know it's like you you can't teach somebody how to hear when somebody drops a beat in a Mm -hmm. in a in a one-on-one lesson you know what Mm -hmm. i mean it's like it's an experience game you have to go do it and the best musicians have more experience than you yeah it's i think it's like really what it it's really what it comes down to you know it's not quite that simple but like it's an experience-based music Mm -hmm. you know what i mean you have to like you have to fall on your face enough times to know how to never let that happen again or how to see it coming, how to, you know, it's like all these things. It's, I I picture when I'm playing, it's like you've seen, you've witnessed and experienced like all the things that can happen. Yeah. So you just know how to stop them. Like you, especially like this might also just be a drummer thing too, because drummers have so much power in any like control and like um, they have so much power in any group that, or any configuration that they're in that you sort of like learn how to see the things coming yes. and, and, and be yes. like, you're like the, you're like the guardian of the music yeah. kind of, you know, it's like, you're a lot of things. You're like my, my, um, my band director in high school would be, um, he would always say he would, he would berate the band. He would literally say things like, he's like, you guys have no idea how lucky you are that you have a drummer this good in high school. Like he would like use me to like shame, (laughs) to like shame the rest of the band. He's like, you guys have no idea how lucky you are. He's like laying out, he's setting everything up. He's like, you know, but oh my God, I went into complimenting myself and I forgot what I was gonna say. Um, Yeah, oh, he would say, uh, he'd be like, uh, you're the shepherd. He's like the drummer is the shepherd, everything, everybody else is sheep. Mm. You know, I mean, that's like a, a big band analogy, which is, yeah. you know, a big band has its a yeah. little bit more of a specific role, you yeah. know, um, and formula uh, to it. But yeah, there's just, um, I don't even know if I've answered your question. I don't remember about this. Well, I know. And that's, <laughs> but it's all good. That's yeah, what this, yeah. this podcast I, I do, is all about. I, I, do, I do not uh, envy your edit, the editing process of this one. Um, uh, it's not going to be any <laughs> straight through. Yeah. Um, the uh, so well, as far as this the swing feel so you said associating like the odd meter thing obviously yeah. I I got that from spending so much time studying with Ben mm-hmm. you know and without knowing it you know like even when I was learning like rock tunes like my my drum teacher growing up um, his name was Jackie Brown no <laughs> lie his, his name was Jackie Brown um, and was as much of a character as somebody in a Quentin Tarantino movie um, but he uh, he would have these these charts like I have note for note you know, like drum transcriptions of like War Pigs by Black Sabbath, Sunshine of Your Love, um, Rush tunes, like in these charts, I was realizing like subconsciously, I was being exposed to odd meter stuff mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. knowing it. And mm-hmm. one of the bands I use as an example for this is Soundgarden. Yeah. You know, like, cause these are like Soundgarden. I mean, yeah, I was learning Rush tunes, but those are from two very different times. One's like a, you know, 80s prog rock and one was like 90s metal, you know, kind of uh, hard rock kind of thing. But they were, it was odd meters based on, like, you didn't know that it it didn't feel odd because it was Mm -hmm. based on a riff that you could sing. It was like riff-based music. Mm -hmm. So 
it would sound in seven just because that's exactly like it was melodically in seven. Yes. So I realized that like subconsciously I was being exposed to odd meter music without even like kind of knowing what it was. So that was kind of like my first exposure to it. Yeah. Then working with Ben, but the the people that have really shaped like the just the the swing feel were I mean every teacher that I've had since I've been in Philly which first Eric Johnson was my mm -hmm. first teacher when I got I was like really fortunate I know some people have a teacher the whole like you know the whole four four years yeah. I consider myself lucky to have had many teachers like yeah. like one per year because you're just getting again it's an experience thing I'm getting that I'm absorbing that much that many more opinions that that much more experience from all these different people so eric johnson was my first teacher then i studied with carl matola um briefly he he'd actually gotten sick he it was he was older at the time and he had gotten sick and then i think a couple years later had actually passed away but i got a brief period of time with him and he was very like he was like a swing you know a casino like swing master you know like back in the heyday of atlantic city yeah. um and then from there, uh, then it was Dan Monahan. I studied with him. And these are all like people that have great feels and great swing approach. So, um, and then just going to watch, like you mentioned Ortliebs, you know, even when I was lucky enough to experience Ortliebs before the, yeah. the, the new ownership, like I, like the true Ortliebs. And even then, maybe they were like, ah, the Ortliebs was like 10 years before that, like yeah. in the 80s or whatever. I consider myself really lucky to have experienced that. So. I would not only see like, you know, the masters, like be able to see Mickey Roker play, mm -hmm. you know, Byron Landum, you know, who's still like, he's a huge mentor yeah. of, of mine now. And then when we went for the master's program, I got a chance to actually study with Byron and like yeah. be in the same room with him every week and talk about drums where before I would just see him at Ortlieb's play a ballad with sticks. And then I'd think about that for like six months. Yeah. Like literally just I'd watch him play one song and, and that would give me enough to be like, whoa, you know, yeah. not even just, just that like maturity and the feel and like how, and how it works and how like real, because Philly has like a really like a specific swing tradition, you know, sure I think is. like people swing in Philly differently, you know, I mean, it's maybe I haven't lived in enough places to say that, but it's like, you hear it enough that it must be true. Yeah. Especially like Philly has such a strong rhythm section, you know, history. So being able to see this, being able to see Byron, Mike Boone, Sid Simmons, and experience that like, that authentic like jazz club. And, and there's a level of like intimidation that I mm -hmm. think doesn't exist yeah. doesn't really exist anymore of sort of like you know here you are like this 18 year old like kid from the suburbs like sitting in like a dark smoky jazz club like yeah. watching these people that are like 30 years older than you you know like you're afraid to talk to just like do this something that you're trying to learn how to do like yeah there was just that you know that I that was like a huge so that scene just like the Ortliebs and getting to watch them and not even mentioning the people a generation ahead of me like Wayne Smith mm -hmm. you know like watching him play George Burton mm -hmm. you know and watching like the people one generation ahead of me that had studied from those people so every generation you get they have that tradition plus yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. then the next generation has the tradition plus 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 uh -huh. just because of your you know like that's just how it's going to work there's kids now that have like are exposed to music not only just the access they have to it but um, the amount of music different music that's out there um but that like watching the masters do it that's like what really impacted like the swing feel and knowing how to do you know like 
how to play that role. Like knowing when to be a straight ahead drummer that goes back to that whole role playing though. Like mm-hmm. know like what gig are you on right now? You know? And a lot of from a lot of those teachers I got that versatility the versatility uh, thing from it. One, it happened naturally just because I listen to all like I love and listen to all sorts of different music, but studying with people that kind of knew it. Eric Johnson was like a huge influence um, when it came to that because he would cr- he was in a rock band. Mm-hmm. He was in a, a, a rock band Huffamoose that played at Woodstock '94. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But he played in Ben Schachter's band, and he like had this, and that just goes that it's like feel your feel is in every style of music that you play doesn't matter whether it's like klezmer or whether it's like classical or or whatever doesn't matter you know that's your feel is in everything that you play and so that's something i got from him because he could teach me how to play you know like in the studio and he was just i i I remember being like that's a versatile drummer and i remember thinking that that was really important to me not like oh i'm gonna be versatile fortunately my my sensibility and my personality was going to lend me to being versatile anyway mm-hmm. just having really in liter legitimately enjoying playing so many different kinds of music yeah. not like oh i do this kind of gig cuz you have to you have to be it wasn't like you have to be versatile it's like i'm going to be versatile you yeah. know that i can get to do all these so it was really that the Ortliebs scene and just just like watching the masters do it like mm-hmm. i said just you wouldn't even need to ask them anything you just need to go watch them do it and I'd think about that for like months. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what is what is something you practice every day? Patience. Uh, <laughs> generally, as I get older, it's just trying to be a better person. Um, um, my practice routine, uh-huh. or what I've found, is at this point, is most beneficial to me. Is I don't have, I don't have like a warm-up routine per se um, but what I do is just s- is play first thing I will do is just play sit a drum set and play and what inevitable because you have to just like it's being like hey old hey buddy you know yeah, like yeah. it's just like rem- remember you know like you have to just you got to wake up you sort of have to you got to connect with the instrument you got to you have to get that started what will inevitably happen is I'll just riff and I'll just play for however long it takes inevitably I'll do something that I fumble on, mm-hmm. you know? And, yeah. and then I'll be like, yes. It's <laughs> yeah, that thing yeah, of yeah. like, when you know you make a mistake, you can fix it. And then it'll just be like, ooh, what is that? So I always start by doing And then once I find that, I have so many exercises, like little just, it's not even stuff that I give to students, but like just things for me to be like, ooh, okay, I got like a new like exercise thing I can do based on a mistake that I made while I was improvising or while I was like just trying to create an emote. Um, and I'll pinpoint that thing, and then boom, then then becomes like the the practice yeah. session right there. And it might be like a few things, and like I, I might pinpoint a few things. But now that I've gotten, that I've started teaching more and have like learned how to use music notation software, which I did, and I hand wrote everything for a really long time. That now when I do those things, it's like boom, get off the drum set, go to the computer, and write out that exercise, mm-hmm. and just figure out like that thing that I messed up, and be like, oh, what is that? And then. I have a new thing to practice now. Yeah. You know, that's, that's usually how I like find things to try and, to try and improve. And then, I mean, aside from that, you like, you know, when you're playing, you know, 
oh, like, I practice when I'm on the gig or something. But it's like, no, I don't really do that because I don't like, you know, I don't picture I have headphones on and I'm not listening to anybody and I'm just thinking about myself, you know, on a gig. But it's like, that is, the gigs will even give me something that I practice. If there's something be like, maybe it's something that you wrote or something or that the the composer had be like, oh, what's this vamp, you know? Andrew Urbina in uh, USC trio he writes stuff that I like is so hard for me to do and mm-hmm. I, I'd be like well you just gave me something to like you just gave me my next like practice session you know yeah absolutely yeah. that's interesting that reminds me of a um, of an author of a book that I'm really into called The the War of Art okay and um, he talks a lot about navigating it's a little it's a bit different than what you're saying, but it just reminds me of it. He talks about navigating by fear. So uh-huh. things you're afraid of yeah. are the things that you have to like conquer. Uh-huh. And you can use that use that feeling of fear as as a, as a compass, kind of through through artistic endeavors. Absolutely, which was kind of interesting, but a little different. But no, I, I like that. that of like putting out the the uh, the sonar, if you will, and seeing what pings mm-hmm. back and go. There, there it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. No, that's cool. I'll, I'm happy to take full credit for that idea. Yes. Yeah. Good job, man. <laughs> the the <scronomy. laughs> What is a trend in the jazz-ish world that we, you think we'll see more of in ten, five to ten years? Um, groove, hip-hop, R&B influence. Mm-hmm. I think that's what... You, I think that is one of the biggest things I'm noticing is that like sh- straight ahead swing is, I mean it's still there's there's still masters doing it and there's still people putting out like you know beautiful uh, beautiful content but what I'm seeing the, this, the things I'm seeing make an impact are on the groove are, are like leaning towards groove based or have like an, an R&B influence you know like uh, like a Chris Daddy Dave you know, mm-hmm. Robert Glasper, um, Snarky Puppy, these things like these groups that when I'm when I see students that I teach like like uh, teenagers or college age kids, they're like these are the concert like these are the bands that they're work like these are the people that they're going to see, mm-hmm. and these are people playing at you know jazz festivals and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think just that influence of I don't, I don't know I guess it's, it could just be as simple as as groove but I know groove groove might be a little bit too vague because swing is groove you know but I guess I mean more like pocket based you know more more of like a a hip hop and R&B background in jazz you know with jazz theory and harmony but sort of like delivered in a vehicle that you in in a vehicle that most people are more familiar with yeah and can react to like you know and react to rhythm in a way that that they know and that they're used to more so than straight ahead swing yeah. and jazz. Yeah, I you know, just, I saw um, it's just another way of like delivering yeah. the content, absolutely, you know, to the listener. And yeah, that, that reminds me. I saw um, Kamasi Washington. Yeah, that's and, a perfect example. And um, and Herbie, double bill at at, at the Met. Oh yeah, uh, which was pretty cool. And was yeah. um, was was Big Yuki playing keys with Kamasi on that show? Uh, Who's playing keys? I recently got to do a gig with him um, recently, and he was, I think he's, like, currently playing with Kamasi. Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll have to double-check. Yeah. I was, 
I think I could see who the key. I feel like the keyboard player was just like, "You weren't there, were you, was, Nick?" Oh no, he <laughs> found me out. Um, I feel like he was just behind like a big thing of a wall, big of fortress of synthesizers, synthesizers yeah. and and I was yeah. on the opposite side side, and I was checking out Miles Mosley's uh, bass effects. I've such. I've noticed um, they call those worlds. And on on large large stage shows, that's one thing I'm learning by doing this Baga uh, stuff and, and playing with people who are used to doing like like four people on a massive stage. They're like, oh, and here's Guitar World, and here's here's Keyboard World. Like they get their uh, own world on stage. You know, <laughs> insider information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what is something that you like most about the younger generation? Of musicians, I see. I know you're teaching college level a bunch lately, and what is something that you see in them that you're like, yeah, that that thing? Hmm. Probably have a longer list on the the con the cons <laughs> the con list is probably a little bit longer, but but then again, that's sometimes I wonder if that's just me. That's just me losing touch and being like. Well, dude, what were you like? Like, yeah, what, yeah, what do you yeah. think you were like when you were that age? You know, which yeah. sometimes I, I lose perspective on. But, um, well, with with the musicians that I'm seeing out there, I, I think it just goes back to what I said about um, the every generation is tradition plus 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 plus. You know, mm-hmm. every, and it has more, and that these sometimes it can pose a a, a problem because they now you have like the student, okay, like the, the the person studying music has so much access to information yeah. that it's like, well, how do you, like, what do you do with, like, here's here's this, like, massive data set. Yeah. How do you, how do you get anything? Like, where do you start? How yeah. do you make sense of it? And it's sort of like, okay, well, all right, so this, this person's playing like this and doing this, but why are they doing it and it's mm-hmm. because like what about all those things like have you seen them play 15 years ago in this like very different other you know what i mean yeah. and like see their evolution is that you sort of like you just get the end product you know mm-hmm. and you can see like they might see uh, so i'm not answering because i'm just saying what i don't what I don't like <laughs> good question so here's here's what i want to talk about um is is they you know the tradi- like the 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 journey gets a little bit lost because yeah. you just see the end thing and you're like, well, I want to get there, and it's like, well, you know, go back to the beginning, yeah. go back to the end of the line, and get there. Like yeah. they got there, uh-huh. the way. But but I would say so as far as what I think is good about is that they that brings an open mindedness, I think, too, and just the amount of music that that they're listening to, different styles that yeah. they can have access to. Be like, I want to learn like. I want to like learn what world music's like. Spotify, boom. play me a book. Boom! Yeah, it's yeah. just that's the thing. Everything is boom. You can find out about it, in, as opposed to someone that maybe you know gave you a CD. It'd be like, hey, have you heard like Drums of Fire, like by Babatunde Olatunde? And you'd you'd have to get in. in that might have more of a meaning because it's it's like you would just focus on this one, you know, mm-hmm. this one thing. But I think they now have this open mind. And like every generation, like they see, like through the future, like they see what's coming, like more than you do. Yeah. You know. You know what I mean. So it gives. There's sort of like this barometer, of like, where things are are, 
where things are headed or where things are starting to lean. You know what I mean? Yeah. But as most of the musicians I'm seeing are in Philadelphia, obviously, or the students that I'm seeing are in Philly. And even though they, like, the new generation of musicians' tastes might be uh, leaning one way, Philly's still got the truth. They can still go see Byron, you know? Yeah, yeah, they yeah, still yeah, They yeah. can still go see Mike. And uh-huh. they can still, like, the people that we got that tradition from are still here and they're still doing it. So it's like, as long as they're going out, which, you know, they better be, you know, yeah. because really if you want to learn how this works, I should see you at every jam session. Yeah. I should see, you know what I mean? Because like, that's how you figure out how this, yeah. the magic of jazz works, um, is they can still see that. So Philly's still going to have that tradition and it's like, they'll get to see somebody do this thing that they don't maybe listen to or think that like, oh, nobody does that. I'd be like, yeah, they do. Yeah. And they're like, that's you know that kind of drumming that tradition is what informed your your mark julianas and your nate smiths and all these people that like people are like people are worshiping now and like trying and trying to emulate it's like yeah they didn't just they didn't just do that they got there you know what i mean so i think it's it's cool in philly that you can see that you can see every generation you can see our like in-betweener generation you know Mm -hmm. sort of that like can can hang with the traditional cats but know the you know can hang with that's kind of just where just as far as like a sustainability you know for me i'm just like i i just want to keep making sure i keep one foot here and one foot here and i can do i can do either gig and i can do it well yeah you know absolutely and talking about the tradition i'm gonna kind of link that back up with with um the tradition of in the spirit of like the tritone and also in the tradition of the Ben Schachter residency thing, um, you have taken over um, running the the Cherry Street mm-hmm. uh, Tavern gig, which was uh, Ben's residency uh, yeah. uh, before he moved. And just saw you guys a couple times there, which is super fun. It's, which we, we, we had the um, like getting to know you meeting, the meet and greet meet and greet the, the, the grad program the <laughs> the inaugural um temple jazz grad program meet and greet yeah. uh, held at a bar yes <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty cool yeah that's no exactly you couldn't do with undergrads well you know? that is that's why the cherry street gig happened yeah, it, yeah, yeah and yeah. it and it like i i can't take full credit for it but i i had been to cherry street at, like not often but i had just been there randomly uh-huh. and just like I didn't even I thought it was just that like the bar and the yeah. deli counter in that room I didn't even know that there was a back room yeah with tables and a dartboard like and all this this space there was yeah. this basically the same like there was just like another bar you know another area um the same size as the bar I didn't even know that existed until we did that meet and greet and then yeah. Ben and I think like maybe stayed a little bit longer after it had sort of let out and I went and I just, I half jokingly was like, hey, Ben, you know, like, yeah. like, hey, we should get our next gig here. And literally, that's what happened. Yeah. And then he just, I think, from him um, spending some time there, he just, like, got to go. Because it's very much a, like, mom and pop, pop operation. Yeah. It's a, it's a yeah. cheers vibe there, you very know. Much. And it's, it's beautiful. The people are so friendly. Like, yeah. um, there's such good people there. And they really, they they really support what we're doing you know yeah might not be financially but it's like they just they really they're like oh yeah we got jazz you know like yeah they're just really they're really into it um but that's kind of how it started was that us mm-hmm. meeting there for that thing and then he just ended up talking to him and then when he left i think i stayed and i did the thing that like 
you know, because Ben is a very, he's a very soft-spoken, he's very humble, you know, he's, he's like, introverted. Um, he's not going to, like, you know, he's not going to tell anybody his resume. But when he was gone, I, like, I sat at the bar and I was like, hey, just so you guys know, yeah. like, that guy is the shit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like, and he teaches at, like, all the universities and, like, every, like, he's, like, a huge mentor to every jazz musician in Philly, like, we should do like yeah, so yeah, as yeah. when he was gone i like gave the like i read them you know his resume basically um and then and then it happened yeah. and then we did it and then it was just it was great because i think at that time you know because ben had moved ben had moved he left philly came back to philly left you know left yeah. again so that was when he had come back to philly so we had not played you know me yeah. leon and ben were not playing regularly for two three four years you know there was a period of time where we would go visit him. He would find opportunities for us out in the West. He lived in San Diego for two years. We did some things there, and he lived in um, Tucson for two years, and we he got us some opportunities there. But then it was like great. We like we we got our old gate. You know, we got a residency back and yeah. got to work on that again. And so when he moved, I realized I was like, this is too good of a setup yeah. to just be like, oh well, you know, Ben Ben moved, so it's not it. So then I had to think about what what to make it and not and i knew if it was going to be like hey guys come see me drum every i was like i just don't nobody cares that much <laughs> i was like that's not going to get people out there every month i was like but why not feature like the the scene i love you know yeah. and why not like have it be a chance to like like i know so many great jazz musicians and composers of 20 years older than me 10 years younger you know what i mm -hmm. mean of like all different you know backgrounds and styles so I was like, let's make it a let's make it a concert series. Like, let's do two let's do two bands, you know, because somebody like a giant like Ben, you could just be like, and you also knew like that was your only chance to go see him. Yeah, that was also another thing about that band and him. It was mm -hmm. like you weren't going to see him on anybody else's gig. You weren't going to see him uh, at any club. No big band downtown. gigs. No big band gigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, <laughs> You, and, and so you knew, like, if you want to go see this guy, that's your chance. So mm -hmm. that had the pool. I don't because you can go see you can you can go see me do all the silly things I do. You know, like I'm just I'm not that kind of uh, imposing, you know, sort of like uh, mystical figure that 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 Ben was. But so I was like, well, I need to get other people, you know, yeah. involved. Um, and I've I've been super happy. We're now this September started like the second season of, of, of me taking it over. Um, so the way the format, um, is we usually do two band bills. Um, the only time we didn't is when I somehow convinced Dick Oates to play with us. And we were just like, I was like, I'm yeah, playing. Yeah. I was like, that's my gig. I was yeah, like, yeah, I'm not, yeah, yeah. I'm not splitting a bill with anybody with, with him. Uh -huh. uh, but since then we've been doing the two and it generally Probably ninety-five percent all original. It's it's bands that have uh, original content, committed bands. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not like it's not a pickup thing. Like, hey, see who you hire for this. You know, it's people have bands. Yours included. Who's who's doing the next installment in November? Do you know the date? Sixth. Sixth. November sixth. It's always the first Wednesday. I don't know the time though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, or where Jerry's not. Just I'll put out the bat signal and, mm -hmm. and you'll you'll know it's time. Um, yeah, so it's always first Wednesday, um, and it's it's been great. We have it, and we've had like a pretty. I want to kind of. I'm still working on like. I mean, with a series that only happens once a month, it's yeah. really tough to get everybody you want to get in there. You know, yeah. in it whether it's like a student aged, 
you know, a college age kid's like cold calling you about it or somebody from your past, you know, yeah. like, like that you hadn't seen in a long time. The other band playing with your with your band on this November is uh, Matt Galetti, who's somebody mm-hmm. I knew, you know, from undergrad at Temple yeah. and is still doing it. I was like, yeah, it seems a great opportunity to get somebody from a different, you know, a different scene to like, you guys bring bring your crowd so we can kind of grow, you know. Yeah, absolutely. To kind of grow it, like, not just based on who I know, based yeah. on who, the different bands that, that play there. Um, so that, something I need to get better. If, when you asked, like, what, what's your, what are you working on or what do you work on every day? What I should be doing is marketing. It's marketing. Yeah, I should yeah, be yeah. learning how to not be so introverted and just blast yeah. the social social media with everything I'm thinking because that yeah. seems like to be what you have to what you have to do. Well, I I feel like um, and I'm still still trying to hone this in, um, but some of the the thinkers in the I turn to inspiration to like business thought leaders a lot because mm-hmm. I feel like they know more about getting the word out about stuff than jazz musicians do. Sure. And uh, a theory that I'm enjoying a lot is the, the theory of a, a, a thousand true fans, which basically talks about how you don't need to get everybody's attention. Mm-hmm. You just need to get the the right people's attention sure. or the people that are receptive to it and and also you wouldn't really want everybody's attention mm-hmm. you know that's like a, 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 if you were to get everyone's attention you would have to like lower your standards so much that like what, what to are, accommodate yeah, yeah. Then like what what are you doing exactly. you know what I mean um, so yeah I feel like just kind of like being real precise about it mm-hmm. is like the name of the game Man, like if I, I said, could get a thousand people at Cherry Street. Exa- wow, that ex- would be exactly, awesome. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I forget who put it. I think it was either like Seth Godin or or Tim Ferriss, who are two people I like to listen to a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like, think about it. If you had a thousand true fans and a thousand people gave you a hundred dollars a year, that's a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Boom. That's 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 pretty good. But anyway, um, I'm still, you know, experimenting. That's kind of how I treat the social media and stuff. Sure. It's just like a, it's well because your results like the quant you can quantify like how yeah. well like be like oh well that didn't work or like mm-hmm. I noticed I was like, I think the first time I I posted a picture of like a pizza, and my wife. I was like, oh, that got the most likes of anything I've ever done. I was like, exactly. All right, cool. So nobody cares about my drum stuff. I just <laughs> you know <did>. like. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Like you could just put it. You can you see know, what works. Like I get a lot of. Um, I'm very active in like outdoor. Uh, oh right, yeah. Rock climbing, camping, hiking stuff in our beautiful Wissahickon Park, beautiful. which is just just over yonder, Northwest Philly, baby. Yeah. Represent. Love it. Yeah. And um, you know, so I post a lot about that, and I get a lot of responses from that, and get yeah. you know, my goal would be to get outdoors people that are basically listening to folk music all the time yeah like hey come, come to a jazz show yeah exactly um anyway yeah we digress my, my yeah the, the <laughs> i could complain about the social media thing forever it's like because we're we're in an interesting like we're we're like a cusp yeah a generation Absolutely. you know where like we didn't have i didn't have a smartphone in college you know yeah me like, neither yeah i didn't 
I remember, I think Leon, Leon Boykins was the first person, I remember seeing the first iPhone, and I was like, what is that, you know? Yeah. He said it didn't make calls. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said you couldn't make a phone call, but it could it could go on the internet. Um, but, yeah, it didn't have that, so it's just like our access and sort of, and this idea of, um, you know, of, you're a brand, you know, of, uh-huh. of like, just, just literally marketing your life, you know, yeah. whether, you know, I mean, for us it's a little bit more different because we have, we have this thing that we do, not just yeah. like... Here's you know here's me enjoying this, um, but I think it's it's a combination of just being like, you know, growing up like introverted and sort of like mm-hmm. the the thing that I've I've struggled with with like putting putting out more content is I don't I can't type the way it, if it's not how I talk mm-hmm. I can't write like that so I can't like can't be like what a truly inspirational experience that was like like, like yeah. these these things that like maybe people want to hear is it but it, I, i'd just be like last night i'd just be like so killing you know it, it's <laughs> yeah, like, like and then i but i don't know if that like you know i don't know if that makes an impact you know so that's yeah. like i if i try and do something i'm like stopping myself like everywhere i'm just like i don't talk like that yeah you yeah, know yeah. because i just I, i'm just way more casual and like you know sarcastic and just sort of you know but I know I know some people maybe they find out how to do that and then you know I don't know I guess really the only difference is hashtags you just have to know how to do that which I, I don't really know how to do that either so but I'm gonna work on it yeah yeah absolutely yeah so find one do 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 one hashtag a day that scares you <laughs> <laughs> that's good that old that old like life it. lesson you know navigate by scary hashtags. yeah <laughs> uh, so I'm gonna wrap this up a little bit with what else? What else have you got on the horizon that you are at liberty to speak about? So I think oh well, so we talked about Cherry Street, yeah. which that's the first. So Cherry Street Tavern is at Twenty Second and Cherry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's every first Wednesday, eight to eleven, two sets of music. You'll get first. You'll get two bands per night. Uh, it's only ten dollar cover for both for the whole night. And um, there's also a concert series that USC started mm-hmm. um, at the Moss Building. It's called Moss Building and Fifth Side because the Moss Building is like a and a block to block kind of thing. There's there's a recording studio in it. There's a like true event space that they rent out for like private parties, fringe festival shows, yoga classes, things like that. And then on the other side, Fifth Side is like a beautiful courtyard area and a and a exposed brick wall um, kind of area where they where they do other concerts it's kind of where like the music will happen and then the other room is for more like private events but um, we have a series there the third Wednesday of every uh, every month so that'll actually be I don't know when this would uh, get out but the next one we have would be this coming Wednesday which would be the 16th Um, and that's so that's curated by USC Sandy Sandy Eldred is really he's like he's the ringleader of it he's he's the the hardest worker when it comes to putting everything together and it's a similar concept it's ten ten dollars it has the advantage of being BYOB you know yeah. and we'll do three acts we'll usually do like a 20 minute solo we like to just like have it build you know like either mm-hmm. a solo or duo act yeah. one time we had like trumpet and dance we had you know so it's just like it might be outside of jazz you know and that's yeah. the thing it's called uh, creative concepts and jazz series where we're tr- trying to have it be like not just a straight ahead we'll, we'll have a straight ahead band too but then USC will do our thing you know yeah, what I mean yeah. just be like really showcase the creative jazz scene yeah. you know what I mean not not pick up 
not pickup gig kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so we'll what do. What do you want to play? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Twenty minutes later, up oh, opening set's done. You know. Yeah. The uh, so we'll do that an opening set, uh, middle band, and then we'll we'll always play last. So that's third Wednesday at Moss Building, which is. Uh, Fifth and Thompson, if you look at it. Everyone has the internet. If you yeah. ask, like, what's the address? <laughs> if you're on Facebook and, and you're, like, you post about something and somebody says, what's the address? Is that them just, like, trolling you, right? Because then you'd be, like, I don't know. You, you, went, on the, you went on the internet <laughs> yeah. to log on to Facebook. Why don't you yeah. just type, type that word in there? Yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, so that's another thing that we have coming up. And then, obviously, the, this the November installment of Cherry Street featuring your band, um, which I'm really excited about because I was lucky enough to play with your band once. Yeah. But and actually, I'm off duty this time. I get to just run the door oh, and just cool. watch two and just watch two great bands play. So I'm excited about that. That is November sixth. Yeah, um, that's the next installment of that. Um, Spaga has some stuff come. I'll be playing at uh, Halloween. It's a festival in Live Oak, Florida, kind of like Jacksonville area. Um, it's like a Thursday to Sunday. It's the, the Spaga shows have been great because, like, we're finding ourselves on bills with, like, Thundercat and like, yeah, with, yeah, like, yeah. awesome bands, but they're always playing, like, a different day, you yeah. know? Like, <laughs> like, Lewis Cole, that we did a festival, residence festival out near Pittsburgh, and Lewis Cole was on the same day, who, who's, like, a drummer I really, I really love. Um, and he was playing, but he was, like, in a different stage while we had to set up for it. And I was just like, ah, it's the one thing I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it, but... Uh, that's later this month. I think we'll be there. Um, we play Sunday the 27th at uh, Halloween. Um, and then as far as, oh, the another big thing is that uh, USC, so the CD release show that, that you came to and you saw, so that was video, that was documented with video and audio. Yeah. So we're actually putting that out as a live record. Oh, cool. Yeah, we've been, um, been kind of like putting out clips so far, like some video clips from it um, to sort of like get the word out. And that's going to be released. Uh, we're just going to do digital only. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be released Tuesday the 5th, cool. November 5th. So the day before the Cherry Street thing. So, um, yeah, I'll be posting about that a lot. So cool. people want to keep that on yeah, our, on our radar. Yeah, where can people follow you and the other and the things you're do doing? Yeah, so all the, uh, on Instagram, I'm uh, Scat Morano. So just my name just mixed up, S-C-A-T-T-M-A-R-A-N-O. Yeah, um, uh, USC, I think USC underscore trio. That's on Instagram. Um, Spaga Band uh, at Spaga Band is on Instagram too. Um, and those are the main those are the main places you'll see where I'm doing because those are the those are the main projects kind of going on right now. Cool. Me. Yeah. Matt Scarano, thanks for hanging out. Yeah. Thank you. Drinking some seltzer and coffee. Yeah. Living that living that fizz life. Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on this show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to hear from you soon.